God, thank you again for your word, for your people. Uh, help us to see the things that you would want us to see this morning and that we would honor you with our heart, with our, with our words, with our actions, that you would be high and lifted up in this place and, and in our hearts. Amen. All right. Well, let's do a little bit of review before we jump in. Somebody tell me what is significant about the language that Daniel is written in. Actually, my wife told me that I need to make sure you guys all have one of these before we get started. So if you don't have one, I can throw one at you. Okay, Kilo, will you take one back to Abby? And I'm guessing Sam probably needs one too, right? Yeah, anybody remember what's significant about the language that Daniel is written in? Mm-hmm. And the rest? Yes. Yeah, good. So let me. Oh, so it's one of the few books that has Aramaic? Yeah. Yeah. Ezekiel has some Aramaic, and uh, Jeremiah has, I think, one or two verses of Aramaic. But yeah, Daniel has a, a large chunk. And if you refer back to our uh, outline here, you'll see that chapters two through seven are written in Aramaic. And those are the same chapters that happen to focus on the prophetic plan that God has for the Gentiles. And so the, the focus of the book really shifts, uh, depending on the language, or the language, rather, of the book focuses, or shifts, depending on the focus of the book. So chapter 1 is talking about the history of Daniel, and then chapters 8 through 12 focus on God's prophetic plan for Israel and how Israel fits into that prophetic plan. And since chapters 2 through 7 are dealing with uh, Gentile nations, or with the times of the Gentiles, it's written in the common language of the day, Aramaic, which was spoken throughout the Babylonian Empire. And a couple weeks ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and we saw this uh, statue that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream of, which represents the time of the Gentiles and how Babylon is going to rule for a season, and then the Medes and Persians will come in and conquer and take over, and then Greece will come in and conquer, and then Rome. And we talked about the division of the iron and the iron mixed with the clay, and how the iron mixed with the clay is going to represent, or represents what is going to be a, some sort of revived Roman Empire uh, still in the future. <clears throat> and then last week, we checked out uh, Daniel chapter 3, and we saw how Nebuchadnezzar took and made his own statue, not made of different elements like this, but made fully of gold, and he told the, the rulers in his kingdom, you guys need to <clears throat> bow down and pay homage to this large structure and worship this large structure, and he sought to destroy Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah uh, while he was seeking to establish his own sovereign rule and let everybody know that he was in charge, that he was in control. And um, that's pretty much where we wrapped up. I mean, obviously we saw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah be rescued out. And in this description, we don't see the, the rock that was made without human hands, right? You guys recall that rock from Daniel chapter 2 and how it represents the divine kingdom and how God will establish his rule sovereignly forever, and that kingdom will not be destroyed. It will continue on perpetually. Um, 
Well, I wanted to, last week, draw a reference back to the fact that Nebuchadnezzar was seeking to uh, establish himself in the place of God and to portray himself as this divine, sovereign, ruling king, uh, even when he had been told already that that's not his place, that there was going to be somebody who came in and overtook his empire, and ultimately God was going to establish this forever kingdom. <clears throat> and so I want to go through and look at a, a number of verses that really focus on how uh, God is sovereign, how he's the one who's in control, how men like you and me, like Nebuchadnezzar, we can make attempts to overthrow God's rule and reign, but they're all futile. And so I want to quickly go through several verses that bring this out. If you're wanting to take notes, you're going to have to do it rather quickly and just write down the reference because we're going to fly through these. Uh, Job 42.2, Job says there, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job after he had been um, plagued with all these negative things. And uh, rather than listening to his wife and, and turning and cursing God, he remained faithful and recognized that God is sovereign. Psalm 33, 10 through 11, the Lord nullifies the counsel of the nations, not just individuals, but of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever the plans of his heart from generation to generation. Again, in Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. That's awesome. Nobody tells him what to do. He doesn't have to uh, try to appease anybody. He doesn't have to uh, bow down to anybody else. He's not worried about what they think. He does whatever he wants because he's God. Proverbs 16, 9. The mind of man plans his ways which is good. We should plan our ways, right? But the Lord directs his steps. And so James would say that we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such, right? Rather than presuming upon the Lord, um, we need to recognize the Lord is the one who directs our steps. That's Proverbs 16, 9. A uh, couple more here. Proverbs nineteen twenty one. Many plans are in a man's mind, or a man's heart rather, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. In Proverbs 21.30, there is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Uh, that brings to mind 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, right? That the wisdom of God is greater than, or the quote-unquote foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man, that there's nothing that we can do that competes with God. And he, in fact, will take and, and use the weak things of the world to, to shame the wise and the strong. Ecclesiastes 7.13, consider the work of God, for who is able to strengthen what he has bent? And the obvious answer is no one, right? If God has done something, uh, it's going to stand firm, it's going to be accomplished. And then Isaiah 14.27, for the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? And again, the answer is no one, right? It can't happen. If God has established it, it will come to pass. So those verses, once again, Proverbs 9.21, 21.30, Ecclesiastes 7.13, and Isaiah 14.27. Got just a couple more here. Isaiah 43.13 says, even from eternity, I am he. God speaking, right? The 
great tetragrammaton, that he is the Lord, the one who is without beginning, without end. He is the great I am. There is no other, no one who can deliver out of his hand. He says that he acts and who can reverse it. Again, nobody. And then lastly, Lamentations 3.37. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord commanded it? So we can, again, be presumptuous in our flesh and try to accomplish our own will. But unless the Lord has established it, unless the Lord has planned it, it's all for naught, right? Um, One of my favorite quotes from a Christian rapper who's not necessarily one of my favorite Christian rappers is from Lecrae when he says in one of his songs, some call it sovereign will, all I know is you the boss. I like how he puts that. Uh, just kind of breaking it down for us that, yeah, we can stand up and uh, just expound on how God is sovereign, how he's in control, um, but really it boils down to he's the one who's in control. He's the one who's the boss. And Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn. He didn't learn that with the the experience we saw in chapter 3. It seemed like perhaps he did. And he said, oh man, this, this God of Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah, everybody needs to pay him homage, and if you don't, you're going to be locked up, you're going to be in trouble, right? But, again, as we mentioned at the end of our lesson last week, he didn't embrace him as his own God. He said, this is their God. This is the God of the Jews. You guys need to listen to him. You guys need to honor him. And we're going to take a look at the repercussions of that here in uh, chapter 4 of Daniel as we look at Nebuchadnezzar and uh, how God humbles him. Yes, Sam. You're good. It's, it's kind of weird. Like, what do you think the reasoning is behind how much God interacted with Nebuchadnezzar of all people hmm. in comparison to pretty much every single other Gentile thing? I mean, you talk about, like, even Cyrus of Persia, Daniel interacts with him a couple of times, but that's basically it. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar, we have God, like, specifically humbling him and, and working with him. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, he did interact quite a bit with Cyrus too, through Ezra and uh, I can't remember if Nehemiah. But yeah, there was and prophecy about him in Jeremiah. But yeah, Nebuchadnezzar was definitely set apart in how, how much communication he had from God. And I think uh, a lot of that is just because that's who God used as his instrument to go in and to be this this tool to accomplish what he wanted to do in, in Judah because Judah had betrayed their God. They had gone against what God had commanded them to do, and so he was going to bring Nebuchadnezzar up against them even though he wasn't necessarily righteous himself. Uh, and then as we looked in uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar was there pondering on these things, just wondering, okay, what's going to come about in the future? And God was gracious to answer him through this dream. And I think a lot of it has to do not so much with Nebuchadnezzar, but with what God is doing and how God is using him as this uh, example throughout history. And that gave opportunity for God to use Daniel to come along and to give him the interpretation of his dream. Um, And again, it's not about Daniel. It's about what God is doing throughout history. Um, Yeah, I I don't really know if I have a great answer. Jerry does, though. What do you got, Jerry? Oh, just to build on that, that you know, this, this is a, a big change. 
these lessons and make these pronouncements and have that written down for history for the rest of the, the Gentile nations to mm -hmm. pay attention to because God is setting Israel aside for the time. Yep. Yeah, this is marking the, the time of the Gentiles. God is doing a new thing and Nebuchadnezzar is the one who is heading this all off, right? Yes. As the head. That's monumental. Yeah, well, lots of people, right? Trying to wipe Azure off the map. Yeah. And it's. But even all that, we, we can look and we can point to people like Nebuchadnezzar, people like Cyrus, people like the UN or England and, uh, or Iraq and Iran and uh, Jordan, all these places. But ultimately, it's all in God's hands, right? God is the one who's pulling the strings. God is the one who has the, the kings in his hand just like a, a river of water. He turns it wherever he wants. God is the one who's ultimately in control. He's ultimately calling shots. <clears throat> just like that plethora of verses we just went through, God is the one who's... Uh, in control behind the scenes, right? Have you ever read uh, Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi? No. Well, he would make a big deal about the fact that you know, he, was a, he became a Mississippi River boat captain, and they had captains in those days who had no, no tools other than a rope and a rock to figure out where hmm. the channel was. But he said he had to memorize the whole thing Changing, and they have to learn every time. And he quoted that Ecclesiastes that you know, God makes There's a lot of wisdom in submitting to the sovereignty and control of God and a lot of foolishness in trying to uh, <laughs> kick against the goads, right? Yes. Yeah, it's not going to do us any good. <laughs> yes, amen. All right, well, last review question. Who is the author of Daniel? Daniel. Daniel, good. And who else? God. Yes, the Holy Spirit as he's carrying along Daniel. One other author, kind of, we haven't discussed about before. Yes? I mean, the chapter we're looking at here has Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Nebuchadnezzar gets a little 
cameo in the Bible. And chapter 4 records the words of Nebuchadnezzar, which is kind of crazy. We have to remember that going in, that he's the one who's writing this chapter. So let's go ahead and read the first three verses of Daniel chapter 4. I just about said Nebuchadnezzar chapter 4, but no, Daniel chapter 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. All right, I before we started, I had those two books, those two ESV books up here that I handed out, and I ran out of them. Kilo, can you run back and grab some from Joseph and see if anybody else needs those ESV books? Um, so in those first three verses that we saw in Daniel chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar just giving praise to the Lord, right? Recognizing God for who he is. He's really exalting the Lord here, submitting to his sovereign rule, acknowledging the eternality of his kingdom, which again, we talked about last week, seemed to be in question a little bit when he was exalting this tower or resurrecting this this tower, um, this uh, statue. And though this is the, the beginning of the chapter, this isn't necessarily Nebuchadnezzar's mindset at this point. This is the result of the rest of the chapter. He's uh, kind of jumping ahead of himself and writing afterwards about this, uh, this state of mind that he's now in with his understanding toward God. And we mentioned last week that several times in the book of Daniel, we see this phrase, oh, let me see, sorry, forgot to put that up there. Daniel 4 is recorded by Nebuchadnezzar. But yeah, several times we see the phrase, most high God or God the most high. <clears throat> and seven of those times are from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar. We saw that back in 326 and then here in uh, 4.2. And the reason I had Kilo hand those out to you is if you like, you can take and, and highlight or circle or put a square box around or somehow indicate these different places where God is referred to as the most high God, because that's important throughout this book. That's what God is trying to communicate, that he is the most high. He's higher than Babylon or Medo-Persia or Greece or Rome or anybody else, any other nation, any other kingdom or individual. God is the most high God. We see that again in uh, 417, 424, 425, 432, 434. You see how many times just in chapter 4 by Nebuchadnezzar, God is referred to as the most high God. And then we'll also see it in uh, chapter 5, 18 and 21 from the lips of uh, Belteshazzar, right? Or Belshazzar, sorry. Belteshazzar is Daniel's Babylonian name, but Belshazzar. And then 7, 18, 22, 25, and 27. Uh, several times God is referred to as the most high God. <clears throat> and I've, I've kind of done that in my Bible too, just uh, circled or, or outlined or underlined or used different colors for different things. And one thing that I've done throughout Daniel is I've circled in red whenever I see Nebuchadnezzar mentioned, or if it's referred to uh, with a, a pronoun, right? Him or he or me or I. And just three times in the first three verses, 
um, do I have red circles on my Bible? In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Verse 2, it says that it seemed good to me. And then again at the end, that the most high God has done for me. But there are uh, five times in those first three verses where I have a, a yellow highlighter there where it's referring to God. That's how I've chosen to identify in my Bible. So the most high God or to talking about his signs, his wonders, his kingdom, his dominion. This is the mindset that Nebuchadnezzar has after the fact. But there's a, a very stark difference in the following verses. In verses 4 through 9, I want you guys to uh, try to pick up on Nebuchadnezzar's mindset in these verses, 4 through 9, and how it differs from this high praise and exaltation we saw in the first three verses. So, verses Oh, I flipped too early. Verse 4 says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related to them the dream. I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, "O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that." A spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. And so you might notice there are a lot of references in that section to Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about my, 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 this is my kingdom, my palace, my dream, my bed, all these things, and, and I, 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 just all throughout, a, a lot less focus on the most high God as he's recounting this experience where he was having this troubling dream and uh, calling everybody in to try to help him figure it out. John Walvoord, in his commentary, he writes that the expression made me afraid is actually much stronger in the original and indicates extreme terror or fright. Remember, back in chapter 2, uh, he had a dream also. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it freaked him out then, too. And... Uh, we're told there that his spirit was extremely troubled and he couldn't even sleep because of this dream that he had back in chapter 2. And he did the same thing, right? He called everybody in, trying to figure it out. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, though he was a king, he was still a, a normal man, right? And no doubt he still had normal dreams, like you and I have normal dreams, some people more than others, but it's a normal thing for somebody to dream. But Nebuchadnezzar, he was freaked out by this dream, just like it was back in chapter 2, and he realized, well, there's something about this dream that's different. This isn't just a, a normal dream. I didn't just eat some weird food last night. Um, he understood that this was a divine dream of sorts, that God was speaking to him through this dream, and he was freaked out by it. He was uh, extremely terrified. He was extremely frightened, and what did he decide to do about it? He did the same thing he did before, right? He he called in all of his quote-unquote wise men, the wise men who couldn't give him an answer before. I don't know why he still has them around. I don't know why they're still on the payroll. 
uh, because they didn't do him much good before. But that's what he does. He calls them in. He asks them to give him some understanding about this dream. And they are unable to, to do so, just like before. They can't really tell him much about this dream at all. But in verse 8, we see that uh, finally Daniel comes in before him. And Daniel now isn't numbered among the wise men at this point. He, he brought in the wise men first, and then he brought in Daniel afterwards. And so uh, a couple of reasons for this. Clearly, Daniel was either too important at this point. Remember, he's already been exalted. He has all kinds of obligations and responsibilities. And so he's too important to be waiting on the king, hand and foot, like all these other magicians and, and conjurers and Chaldeans. Or perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit too proud to inquire of Daniel and to inquire of his God to submit himself to uh, the, the revelation, the understanding that Daniel's God had that he doesn't have and that his gods aren't able to give him. But whatever the case, um, Daniel wasn't at this point included amongst the wise men. He was brought in after, after the fact. And notice also that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uses two different names for him. He initially used his Jewish name, Daniel. He said, but finally, Daniel. Remember, that name gives praise to the Jewish God. The, the L at the end of Daniel speaks of, of God. He said, I brought in Daniel before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. And so he mentions both names, probably because um, Daniel would have been recognized by the name Belteshazzar by most people. That would have been the the common name, his well-known name that everybody else would have known him by, even though at this point, Nebuchadnezzar does recognize his uh, Jewish God-honoring name. And then in verses 8 and 9, uh, it speaks, it says at the end of 8, that this Daniel, in whom a spirit of the holy gods, and I recognize a dream I related, rather, the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you. And it's actually kind of hard to, to say with certainty, to know if Nebuchadnezzar intended this to be in the plural or in the singular, because the, the word for gods in the Aramaic is the same as, as God, singular or plural. And so he could have been... Uh, proclaiming praise to the one true God. But remember, up until this point, Nebuchadnezzar was a, a polytheist. So uh, pretty much all translations, all modern translations, render this as God's plural. But regardless, his assessment tells us that Nebuchadnezzar really did have, have a, a high esteem, a high level of respect for Daniel and for his unique abilities. He called him the, the chief of the mag magicians, um, which shouldn't tell us that Daniel was involved in their, their witchcraft and uh, their, their foolish magic, their, their cheap tricks or whatever, but rather that he was superior to all the other magicians, that um, he was the, the chief scholar among them, that he had the, the most understanding. And so Nebuchadnezzar was going to him to get an answer to what this dream meant. Any thoughts or questions at this point? Yes, Logan. I mean, it looks like he's more recognizing Daniel for what his ability is, but not recognizing his God still. Yeah. And, and at this point, you know, they all have their own God. 
Nebuchadnezzar. He, he has his God, and, you know. Yep. And Daniel tried to make that pretty clear back in chapter 2, right? Before he even told them what the dream was, he said, no man can tell you what your dream was and the interpretation of it. That's, that's impossible. Stop being a fool, Nebuchadnezzar. That's not even realistic. I can't even do that. And he had some, some bravery to be able to say that, right? Before he even gave the, the interpretation. And then he told him, but my God can tell you. My God is capable. My God is able. And then after he gave him the interpretation of the dream, he said, yeah, this came from God. It didn't come from me. And it seems as if Dan, or Nebuchadnezzar was actually praising and bowing down and worshiping Daniel. And Daniel kind of told him, no, 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 that's God. And then Nebuchadnezzar kind of, uh, he repositioned a little bit and said, yes, your, your God is, is great. Your God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But he's forgotten that, right? He's a forgetful man, slips back into his old ways easily. Andy. asking a lot. And it was life or death for them. Yeah. And Daniel was very clear to state, just like you said, that no man can interpret your dreams. Only God knows. Amen. My God, actually. Yeah. Yep. Not, not your God. Not any of your God. They're, they were unable to do it. But the, the King of Heaven, he can do it, right? And he's going to do it again. Let's look at uh, verses, we'll start in verse 10. And consider uh, what Nebuchadnezzar's dream actually was. So Daniel 4, starting in verse 10, says, Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. Again, Nebuchadnezzar himself speaking here. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the vision, in the visions in my mind, as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows Chop down the tree and cut off its branches, strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the field or of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let the beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living God may know, or that the living may know, that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. 
Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. That's a, a lot, right? We've got a lot going on there. Um, but let's go back and let's start back in verse 10. And this vision, this dream, starts off well enough for Nebuchadnezzar, talking about this huge tree, right? And dreams are weird, right? You guys have weird, crazy dreams? Britt makes fun of me all the time because I have crazy dreams, especially when I'm sick. And I guess I'll like talk in the middle of the night and like pick up pillows and throw them around the house and stuff. Um, but yes, <laughs> um, this is a weird dream, right? Just like dreams tend to be. Uh, this tree was unexplainably large, un- unrealistically large, right? It says that it grew up to the heavens. Its height in verse 11 reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. So this tree was just enormous, right? Again, unrealistically large. Think of uh, Jack's beanstalk, right? Just going up into the clouds and disappearing. But it was even larger than that because its branches reached all, all across. And this large tree was lush and fruitful and productive. And it was beneficial to all the birds and all the animals, the beasts. And it says to all living creatures, it provided uh, food and, and shelter and coverage. And uh, this really is descriptive of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom as we'll come to learn here in a moment, but this is a a big, massive, weird, dream-like tree, right, that is unrealistic. And then in verse 13, we see this description being given from this angelic watcher. Uh, Verse 17 actually says that there were multiple angelic watchers. It uses the, the plural. So a couple of angelic watchers coming and giving a a description. And commentators have a lot of speculation on this phrase and not a lot of certainty on the the angelic watcher and what it's really talking about. Some people like get into like UFO type stuff, like really weird interpretations, but that's totally an outlier. For the most part, uh, everybody essentially sees this, these angelic watchers just being angels. And this is Nebuchadnezzar trying to explain using his terminology uh, from his weird cultic background to explain, well, yeah, these angels, they were giving me this understanding, this interpretation. And it really is interesting that this angel essentially does give him an interpretation within the dream. He is telling him what this means, telling him about the, the tree and what's going to happen to the tree. And I think he actually makes it pretty clear. And so why do you suppose that there was so much uncertainty with Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men about this dream when this angel is talking about uh, what's going to happen, about the stump and how it's going to be left, and um, talking about how he's going to have the, the, in verse 16, let the mind be changed from that of a man to that of a beast, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Why, why do you think there's so much confusion with Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men, even though the angel makes himself quite clear. Well, so up, up to this point, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is the, the greatest king yeah. in that day. Yeah, he was the man, right? And so, I mean, you know, even Daniel says he got scared. This is kind of the first point that we see him get scared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, they could have, like the wise men, and even Nebuchadnezzar might have 
connected it a little bit, but it was so out of, you know, so not going to happen. Sure. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. Andy, what do you think? Uh-huh. Right? This ain't, this ain't talking about you, Nebuchadnezzar. This is, this is talking about that dude over there. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Because once you're nuts and you're out there eating grass, you're not going to be able to kill him. So, yeah. you know, it, it happens multiple times in Scripture. It happens with Joseph before Pharaoh. It happens with Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar. It happens with the wise men before Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they, they kind of knew, and they were just afraid, right? Uh, I wrote here, the clarity provided by the angel within the dream itself suggests, at least to me, a lack of acceptance from Nebuchadnezzar and a lack of bravery to interpret from the wise men. I think Nebuchadnezzar kind of knew. He kind of had an idea. This, this isn't good news, right? This is bad news. This is about me. And I think the wise men could have very easily come to that conclusion because the angel, again, he's pretty clear within the dream itself. Uh, I just didn't think they were that brave. And as you pointed out, Daniel was a little bit fearful himself as we learn later. Yeah, Sam. Another possibility is we see it even with Jesus in parables where yeah. looking at him, we're like, oh yeah, that's, yeah, whatever. We, we, we get these, you know. Um, it, but God uses these, these in this case, it'd be a very vivid parable, but a parable right there to, to cloud even the minds of Nebuchadnezzar. Even though he says it so blatantly obvious, we read this and we go, Psh. This is obvious. Yep. It is possible that God just stopped up the minds of the wise men and Nebuchadnezzar to take Daniel, give him this situation, and raise him low above the station that he, even the high station he's at right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Mark 4 says that Jesus has a dual purpose for his parables, right? To to reveal truth to those that he wants to and to, uh, to keep it back from those that he doesn't want to have that truth. And in Matthew 16, 18, or 17, when he's talking to to Peter, who just declared that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of the living God, he says, well, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but God himself has revealed this to you. He's giving you this knowledge, this truth. And yeah, perhaps there's some divine blinding going on here um, and just revealing it to Daniel to lift him up to the state that he's in. Um, we do see in, in verse 15 that there's even a, a transition in the pronouns that are used. You notice that? It says yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, talking about the tree, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the grass and the earth. So uh, we even see this transition from calling the tree it to him, which is another pretty clear indication if you're within your right mind, if God has opened up your eyes to see that this is in reference to a person, not just talking about a tree. In verse 16, it's very clear, even giving a a time frame, again, of the fact that 
Uh, his mind's going to be changed from that of a man to that of a beast, and it's going to take place for a period of seven years, where it says seven periods of time. Um, but we see often throughout the book of Daniel that time is referring to a year. We'll see later in 7 and 9, uh, talking about time, times, and half a time in reference to the, the great tribulation. And then verse 17 even gives a, a very clear purpose, a, a great purpose statement for why this is taking place. In order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And this is such a, a clear purpose statement, an unmistakable punchline. Um, it would be great if we had such a, a clear purpose statement in all passages of Scripture, just like we do in John 20, 30, and, and 31, saying that these have been written so that you may believe, right? Um, or if, even in our own lives, if we had such clarity and understanding for what God was trying to teach us, for why He's allowing certain things to happen in our lives, or um, why things take place the way that they do, we don't always have that kind of clarity. But here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar does. And we can rest in knowing that God is, in fact, perfectly in control of, of all things and all that he does, that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Uh, speaking of this purpose statement at the end of verse 17, why this is being allowed to happen, uh, Reynolds Showers speaks to this word of, of lowliness. I thought this was interesting. Um, so interesting I skipped it. There we go. He says, the word low, lowliest means humblest and would have caught Nebuchadnezzar's attention. His father, Nebuchadnezzar, claimed to be a very humble origin. In one of his inscriptions, Nebuchadnezzar referred to himself as follows. In my littleness, the son of a nobody, of me, the insignificant, who among men was not visible, I, the weak, the feeble. And so Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dad, was pretty humble which is kind of surprising, seeing where Nebuchadnezzar landed, where Nebuchadnezzar ended up. And uh, this is what God was looking for out of Nebuchadnezzar, that he might uh, be humble himself. All right, let's see if I can get on the right page here. There we go. All right, well, let's keep going. Let's look at verse uh, 19 through 22. It says, Then Daniel, um, after getting the the understanding of what the dream was from Nebuchadnezzar. It says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled uh, or dismayed or perplexed, other verses or translations will say, for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. So again, we see Daniel is a little bit nervous himself. Verse 20 says, The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. And so we see here that Nebuchadnezzar had achieved unparalleled success, even as recognized by, by Daniel and by God, uh, who had given him that success. He gets his strength and his might from the Lord, as we've already seen in this book. 
Let me read this quote to you from uh, Damon Duck. Can you imagine what he went through in elementary school? Damon Duck, he said, Nebuchadnezzar had won all his wars, put down all his enemies, rebuilt all his cities, invigorated his nation's agriculture, built great buildings such as temples and places of worship, and gained so much wealth, his kingdom had become known as the kingdom of gold. Uh, some have referred to Nebuchadnezzar as the greatest builder of all time. So far we've found uh, 49 inscriptions on different buildings with his name on it saying that, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon built this. 49 buildings that we've found so far. That's not to mention the ones that have been destroyed or ruined or lost to time or that are still uncovered. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had subdued Syria, Phoenicia, Judea, Egypt, and Arabia, uh, he was a, a great warrior. No wonder he was so proud and puffed up. He was this great tree that we see in this dream. He completed the two great walls that surrounded the city. There was a, an inner wall and an outer wall. And on the outer wall, they could drive, uh, they could race two chariots on top of the wall. It was that wide. Uh, I told you before, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Trump, right? Really about building those walls, those great big walls. Um, and he was, he was proud of everything he accomplished, everything he had built. He had a lot to be proud of from a worldly standpoint. Well, let's keep going. Verse 23 says, In that the king saw an, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you be driven from mankind, and that your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and that you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most High as ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor." in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. And so we do see in, in verse 25 a repeating of this purpose statement that was given back in verse 17. Uh, he says very clearly that until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows on it whomever he wishes. And so this repeating of it also has this duration attached to it, that it's not until you, you come to this understanding, this recognition, this realization that God is going to restore your mind to you. And it's going to be a, a period of seven years. And we also see it that again in verse 26, it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots in the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. And so we see that God has made abundantly clear um, first the, the reason for the punishment, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, the purpose of the punishment, that he might be humbled and come to this understanding, this place of humility. 
and the duration of the punishment until he acknowledges God as the Most High, which again happens to be a, a period of seven years. Seven years that God is going to allow him to stay in this state until he gives him his, his mind about him so that he can uh, turn around and bless God and realize that God is the one who's actually in control. And in verse 27, we see that uh, Daniel offers him some advice. He tells him, well, you better shape up, right? You better show some mercy. You better uh, start being righteous rather than being sinful. And this is just advice. He doesn't make any promises here. However, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't heed this warning. He goes on to ignore it altogether. All right, well, let's continue reading on in verse 28. And we'll see... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and the the outflow of this prophecy. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 28. It says, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And get this, while the word was in the king's mouth, before he could even finish uh, patting himself on the back and and boasting in, in pride, it says, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize the Most Highest Ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind, began eating grass, his body was drenched, and he had grown uh, like... Let's see. He had grown hair like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And so uh, this all came to pass just as it was told that it would come to pass. I want to read this quote to you from uh, Boutflower. And he says that there were several royal places, or palaces rather, in Babylon. But this, where he was walking on the roof of the palace, being all pride and boastful, This was probably the one which had famous hanging gardens upon its roof. That particular palace stood on high ground and was centrally located. From that vantage point, the king would have a magnificent view of the entire city. And so he's able to look out at everything that he had built, and that's where he gets this just proud, uh, arrogant, boastful saying, look at everything that I've done, everything that that I have done in, in my power, everything I have built. Um, and it truly was a, a beautiful place from all accounts. I have a, another quote here from Reynolds Showers on famous hanging gardens. He says that, talking about where they came about from, one of Nebuchadnezzar's wives, the princess of Mid- Media, grew homesick for the mountains of her homeland. In order to satisfy her, the king had mountains built on the roof of the royal palace complex. These mountains were planted with trees and other kinds of plants. And ingenious hydraulic machine system was devised to lift water from the Euphrates River to water the elevated gardens. These hanging gardens became so famous that the Greeks named them one of the seven wonders of the world. 
just hearing that, that sounds pretty impressive, right? These mountains built on top of a, a structure, a, a palace, which I'm sure itself was beautiful, being watered by this incredible, ingenious hydraulic system, bringing water up from the Euphrates. Um, that sounds like something that's worth boasting about, but uh, we know that all boasting is fruitless, right? And God, of course, was calling him out for it because he, again, as we see in verse 30, was just focusing on himself. Look at everything that I myself have built with my power and the glory of my majesty. And so, uh, though a, a full year had passed since he first got this dream, like we read in verse 29, this dream was fulfilled immediately, we read in verse 33, being interrupted while the boastful words were still in his mouth because God wasn't going to put up with that haughty attitude, with that kind of pride. Verses 34 through 37. It says, At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. You see his... Uh, his language changing again, right? Because his attitude has changed. I see a lot more yellow highlighting in this section of my Bible than red circles. Um, So he praised the Most High and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so, as we mentioned before, back in Daniel 2.47, Nebuchadnezzar honored Daniel's God. And in 3.28, he honored the God of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But now here, he is praising the King of Heaven in humble submission to Him. It seems like he's taking on more ownership at this point. And he's not just saying, oh, Daniel's God is great, or Hananiah's God is great. He's saying, no, the king of heaven, he is most high. He is above all. And it's impossible really to, to read his heart and to know where he landed. But this seems to read a little bit differently than uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 and how he spoke of God in those past verses. Um, yes, I think we should probably wrap up there. Any thoughts or questions before we do? <laughs> we have no idea. That was from an extra biblical account. The Bible doesn't speak about that. It just speaks about uh, how Nebuchadnezzar was this great tree and he really was accomplished. And secular history supports that. But even as accomplished as he was, he didn't recognize that that power and ability came from God and he was proud and boastful and haughty and God wasn't going to have that. He, he humbled him. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble And there's certainly a lesson for us in that. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and pray, and we will fellowship before coming back.
God, thank you again for who you are. Remind us that you are the, the Most High, that you are the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that we have no right to, to speak to you, to presume anything upon you. God, help us to truly be humble. Help us to be meek and lowly. Help us to um, be just beggars, realizing that, that we have a, a need for you. We have a need for salvation, that in our flesh we are enemies of God. We are without Christ. We are hostile toward God. We are lost and dead in our trespasses of sin. God, help us to, uh, to be humble to realize that you must increase, we must decrease. God, let us not be like Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, but let us call out to you and, and proclaim and praise and exalt you for being the most high God of all the universe. We pray, this is, pray these things in your name. Amen.